morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 1. This morning we'll be in Luke 1, 67 through 79. If you've been with us for a while, you know that we're taking a little break here from our series on the book of Acts, a four-week break to be precise. And we are taking this month to look at four songs in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke 1 and 2, there are four songs that are related to the Christmas story. And this morning we're looking at the second of those four songs, Zechariah's song in Luke 1, 67 to 79. I know Jim just prayed, but let me pray now and ask that God would bless our time as we open the word together. Father, it is our sincere desire this morning that we would hear your voice loudly and clearly, that despite all the hustle and bustle of the holiday season, all of the Christmas parties and the family gatherings, all the gift buying and gift wrapping and all of the decorations and all of the fanfare and cooking and all of the, that comes with the Christmas season, we pray that this morning we would be able to pause and step back and remember why we celebrate what we do. And that we would remember that indeed Christmas is good news. Oh Lord, please help us to see the good news of the Christmas story this morning. Help us to embrace it. Help us to live for you. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us through your word this morning. Please, for our good and for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I had a friend in college who graduated from a Christian high school, and as part of his educational requirements in high school, he was required to pick a book from the Old Testament and write a report on it. And without giving much thought to it or without doing any research, he picked the book of 1 Chronicles. Now, if you know anything about 1 Chronicles, then you might be aware that roughly the first nine chapters of the book are almost entirely genealogy. In other words, in those first nine chapters, all you find basically is list of name after name after name after name. So-and-so is the father of so-and-so. Who's the father of so-and-so? Who's the father of so-and-so? And on and on it goes. To hear my friend tell this story, when he actually read the book of First Chronicles after having picked it already, he immediately knew that he was in over his head and that he had no idea what to do with the genealogy or how to even begin talking about it. In the first nine chapters of First Chronicles, there are approximately 911 names that are mentioned an additional 25 names of nations or people groups. It's kind of hard to know what to do with that. And for my friend, it was an overwhelming experience and one that stuck with him to the point that years later, after he graduated, he was still sharing the story with us. But here's the thing. Well, I think it would be easy for us to critique my friend's choice of Old Testament books for a book report. Just pick Jonah. It'd be so much easier. The truth is that most of us kind of feel the same way about almost all of the Old Testament as my friend felt about doing a report on the book of First Chronicles. We kind of vaguely understand some of what's going on, but a lot of it, if we're honest, just doesn't make much sense to us. We don't always know what the purpose is either. Why does Leviticus have so many laws about leprosy? Why does Joshua spend so much time talking about the land allotted to each of the tribes? Why is the Song of Solomon in the Bible? And what exactly is Nahum even talking about? Those are legitimate questions, and because we have those questions, because there are sections like the one at the beginning of 1 Chronicles, the first nine chapters of genealogy, I think oftentimes we end up just ignoring the Old Testament altogether. It's confusing for us, so we just focus our attention on the New Testament. But the problem with that is that the Bible is one book with one storyline, and thus ignoring the Old Testament, which comprises roughly two-thirds of the Bible, is like skipping the first two parts of a three-part trilogy. I mean, sure, you can kind of understand the overall storyline of Lord of the Rings if you just watched the third movie, but if you really want to understand the whole entirety of the story, you need to see the first two movies first. In the same way, to grasp the beauty of the storyline of Scripture, you need not just the New Testament, but you also need the Old Testament. 
Because the Bible is one book with one message. And actually, I think the Christmas story helps us to see the unity of Scripture. It helps us to understand the connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In our passage today, it's clear that the birth of Christ has roots in the Old Testament. In fact, deep, deep roots. His birth was a fulfillment of promises and prophecies that were made all the way back, beginning even in the book of Genesis. And understanding that helps us to better understand the overall storyline of Scripture. It also helps us to better understand who God is and what He's up to. So that's it. Let's turn our attention this morning to Luke 1, 67 to 79. If you're physically able, I'm going to ask you to stand here of reverence for the reading of God's Word. Standing is just a simple way that we can indicate we understand this is God's Word, and as such, it's due our attention. Words will be on the screen if you want to follow on that way. You can listen as I read. If you have your own Bibles, I would encourage you to look along as well. Luke 1 verse 67 through verse 79. Word of God says this, starting in verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. It's the word of God. You may be seated. So as I mentioned earlier, Zechariah's prophecy or song here is the second of four songs related to the birth of Christ that we find in Luke 1 and 2. Now it's an interesting song because the context of the song here is that Zechariah is responding to the birth of his son, John the Baptist. And yet the song has very little to say about the birth of John. In verses 76 and 77, Zechariah briefly reflects on the significance of the birth of his son, but the overwhelming majority of the song is about Jesus. And even the significance of John the Baptist's birth is tied to the importance of Jesus as well. And in that way, we could say this, Zechariah is just like his son, John the Baptist. John the Baptist's role was to point to Jesus. In fact, John famously said in John 3.30, he, meaning Jesus, must become greater, I must become less. And in this song, John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, does the exact same thing. He points to Christ. And specifically, it would seem that he wants us to see that God's promised salvation that we see in the Old Testament was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah of the Old Testament who brings salvation to the people of God. Jesus is the one that was prophesied about throughout the Old Testament. He's the one that was promised in the Old Testament. He's the one from the Old Testament who will give light to people in darkness. Some scholars have estimated that upwards of 16 Old Testament passages are being referenced here in this particular song. And the clear point of all those references is to say this, that Jesus is the Christ. Christ is not his last name, by the way. It's a title. It means that he's the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who would save his people from their sin. Or maybe to put it in one sentence, Jesus is the promised Messiah from the Old Testament who brings salvation to the people of God. Now, from both the content and literary structure standpoint, I think the focal point of this song is found in verses 72 and 73. In those verses, 
Zechariah talks about God showing mercy that was promised to the fathers and remembering his covenant, the oath that he swore to Abraham. And it's clear from the rest of the psalm, both before and after verse 72 and 73, that God was fulfilling his promises made to the fathers and the oath that he swore to Abraham by sending Jesus. Now, the song has two parts, verses 68 to 75 and verses 76 to 79. Well, each of the two parts has a slightly different emphasis. The overall point of the song is clear, that God fulfilled his promises by sending Jesus. Now, look first at the first part of the song here, verses 68 to 75. Verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So Zechariah starts in verses 68 and 69 by praising God or blessing God because God has visited and redeemed his people. And he'd done so by raising up a horn of salvation in the house of David. Now that's clearly talking about Jesus, and it's clearly language that's from the Old Testament. In Exodus 4, in the beginning stages of God bringing his people out of Egypt and out of slavery, God is described as visiting his people and seeing them in their affliction. That language of visitation is again used here in 68 to reference that there's a new Exodus that's coming. Isaiah 59, 20 talks about a redeemer that will come from Zion. Now that language is being used here in verse 68 and applied to Jesus. He is that redeemer. Furthermore, in the Old Testament, a horn was a common metaphor for power. It was often used as a metaphor because of the strength of horned animals that lived in the region. And in Psalm 132.17, in the context of talking about salvation, the psalmist there talks about a horn that will sprout up from the line of David. Clearly, Zechariah is saying Jesus is that horn. He's the powerful one that was prophesied about in the Psalms. He's the powerful one that was prophesied about throughout the Old Testament by all the prophets. In fact, Zechariah expands on this in verse 70. He lets us know that all of this came to pass, all of this being Jesus' birth, as it was spoken by the mouth of God's holy prophets from of old. So the Old Testament language of visitation and redemption and the horn of David, this is language that's meant to point us to Jesus, the one who would save his people from their sin, the one who would save his people from their enemies and from the hand of all who those who hate them. In Jesus, God showed the mercy that he promised to the fathers, and he fulfilled his holy covenant and oath that he made to Abraham in Genesis 22. In Genesis 22, God promised Abraham that through him all nations would be blessed, through his offspring. And the point that Zechariah is making here in this song is that Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. He's the one that delivers in order that we might serve him without fear and in holiness and righteousness. The first half of the psalm then is clearly pointing us to this one truth, that God fulfilled his promises through Jesus. Jesus is the promised Messiah who brings salvation to the people of God. And the second half of the song is emphasizing the same thing. Verses 76 to 79. Verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So clearly there's a shift in emphasis in verses 76 and 77, whereas verses 68 to 75 highlight how Jesus brings salvation and fulfills covenant promises. Verses 76 to 79 highlight the relationship between John the Baptist and Jesus. 
But even though the emphasis shifts, the point remains the same. Jesus is the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. Even the role of John the Baptist testifies to that reality. In verses 76 and 77, Zechariah underscores the role of his son, John. He says that John will go before Jesus as a prophet of the Most High and prepare the way for the Lord. He'll give knowledge of salvation to the people and let them know about the forgiveness of sins. Zechariah's description of John's role is significant because it too is taken from the Old Testament. Malachi 3.1 talks about one who would come and prepare the way of the Lord. And Zechariah is saying that his son, John the Baptist, is that one. He's the one who's going to prepare the way for the Lord. He's the one who's going to testify to the sunrise that's coming. The one who's going to testify that light is coming to those in darkness and that peace is coming to those who walk in his way. In other words, John the Baptist's birth is another sign that God's plan of salvation has drawn near. So John the Baptist's birth then is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy as well. It's a sign that the messianic age has commenced, that God is fulfilling his promises made in the Old Testament. The light prophesied about in Isaiah 9 or Isaiah 40 or Isaiah 60 is about to dawn. Or again, to say it more succinctly, John the Baptist's birth helps us to see that Jesus is the promised Messiah from the Old Testament who brings salvation to the people of God. So in light of the content of Zechariah's song, I think it's safe for us to say this. The Old Testament is not irrelevant. It's not out of date or dusty, and we can thus just neglect it. Rather, the Old Testament is the Word of God that points us to the Word who is God, Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Whether it be the prophetic word of Moses, or Isaiah, or Jeremiah, or Zechariah, or Ezekiel, or Daniel, or Micah, or Malachi, Jesus is the one they are pointing to. He's the anointed one the horn of David, the descendant of Abraham, the light of Isaiah. He's the promised Messiah who brings salvation to the people of God. Now, having said all that, you might be asking a question this morning. Okay, I get it. Jesus is the Messiah, but why should I care? Right? After all, some of you right now are going through some really difficult times. Some of you have people that you love that are dying. Others of you know And have people that you care about deeply that are sick. Or relationships that you once cherished that have broken or disintegrated. Maybe you're in a financial situation that's just grim or your health is fading. Or maybe you're just exhausted from living in a broken world. And so the idea idea here that Zechariah is singing about the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy seems to you to perhaps be completely irrelevant this morning. And listen, if that's you, I get it. I understand that when you're sitting in a hospital room staring at a loved one who's in pain, or when you're trying to go to sleep at night, but you can't because tears are stinging your eyes as you consider a relationship that's broken, or when you're thinking about the direction your kids are headed in, and it looks to you like they're going off a cliff, I understand that in those moments, it probably doesn't seem like much of a comfort that Jesus came and fulfilled Old Testament prophecies. But what I'm going to argue this morning is that while our natural inclination may be to say, well, I don't know how relevant this is, I'm going to argue that actually a passage like this one indeed has great relevance for our everyday lives. In fact, no matter the circumstance you find yourself in, no matter what kind of trouble you are facing, I'm going to argue this morning that this passage is relevant and it matters and should be encouraging to you. And the reason why it matters and the reason why it's relevant, I think, are several in this passage First, I think this passage matters because it helps us to see that God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. Again, the center of the passage is verses 72 and 73, which says this, to show the mercy promised to our fathers 
and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us. And then he goes on. The emphasis here in verses 72 and 73 is on God's covenant-keeping ways. He remembers his covenants. He keeps his oaths. He fulfills his promises. And in a world full of promise breakers and liars, that matters. I read an article this week in which a man was wrongly sentenced to jail for a crime he did not commit. And he was convicted in large measure because the prosecutors simply made up facts along the way to try to get a conviction and try to prove him guilty, even though he was not guilty of this crime. It took over a decade before the case was overturned and the man was set free for a crime that he never committed. It was a terrible story. And the worst part of the story is that the prosecutors just made up facts in order to try to save face and get a conviction. But that's the world we live in, isn't it? We live in a world full of liars and deceivers and promise breakers. Whether it be the prosecutor who fails to live up to the standards of justice, or the company that lies to us in order to get our business, or the husband that cheats on his wife and breaks his covenant vows, or the teenager who deceives her parents to try to get away with something. We are surrounded by unfaithful, dishonest, and unreliable people. And if we're honest, sometimes we are the unfaithful, dishonest, or unreliable person. Sometimes we're the one who stretches the truth in order to try to save face. Sometimes we're the one who deceives in order to try to get away with something. Sometimes we are the one who exaggerates to try to get sympathy. And sometimes we are the one who fails to keep our word. But let's be clear. While that may be true of us as humans, that is not true of God. Satan may be a liar, and in fact the father of lies. But God is truth, and in him there is no hint of falsehood whatsoever. He is who he says he is, and he always keeps his word. And Zechariah points out here, as Zechariah points out here in Luke 1, Jesus' coming is evidence of God's promise-keeping nature. God spoke through the prophets of old, and it came to pass. God promised the fathers, and Christ, he showed that mercy. God made an oath with Abraham that his descendants would be blessed, and in Jesus, that oath would be fulfilled. God always keeps his promises. I think the challenge for us is it's hard to accept that because, again, faithfulness and truth-telling and honesty are so rare. A lot of people we know fail to keep their word, and so it's hard for us to believe that God will keep His. I mean, think about it. I've attended several weddings, you probably have too, where the bride and groom stood up and they promised before the congregation they would never break their vows, only to do so just a few years later. I've seen companies lie to their employees, promise them certain things, only to go back on their word completely and leave their employees high and dry. I've seen kids lie to their parents' faces and do so without even blinking an eye. And I'm guessing you've experienced similar things yourself. People have lied to you. People have broken their promise to you. People have looked you in the eye. And then they've done the exact opposite of what they said they would do. And because that's the case, I think it's hard for us to trust anyone. But hear this, God is not like us. He does not go back on his word. He does not fail to keep his promises. To paraphrase Numbers 23, verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. He speaks and then he acts, he promises, and then he fulfills. And that matters for us, not just because, it's, not just because it means that he's kept his promises in the past, but it also matters because it means he'll keep his promises in the future. And that's where a passage like this one starts to become extraordinarily relevant for us. It's one thing to say God's kept his promises in the past, but it's another to say God will also keep all of his promises in the future. 
but both are true. The Christmas story matters not just because it means that God fulfilled, past tense, his promises to Abraham and David through Jesus, but it also matters because it means that God is a promise-keeping God who will, future tense, keep his promises going forward. So when he promises, for example, that those who trust in Christ will find forgiveness of their sins and everlasting life, you can take that promise to the bank. When he promises us that are in Christ, that he's working together for our good in all things, that's a promise that we can trust. When he promises us that one day he will return and he will make things right, it's not a matter of if that's going to happen, it's a matter of when, because it's going to happen. Now, I understand sometimes we look at the world and we think, well, how are those promises true? How is God working for our good in all things when it seems like our life is in shambles? How is God going to make all things right when right now everything seems so broken? Listen, I don't always know the answers to those questions, but what I do know is this, and what the Christmas story reminds us of is this, that God will keep his promises. He's not wish-washy or duplicitous. He does what he says. He fulfills what he promises. Now, that doesn't always mean that he fulfills his promises immediately or that he fulfills them in the way that we would want him to. Even as it relates to the birth of Christ, we have to admit there is a long gap where the people of God were waiting for the coming Messiah. And no doubt during that time, many were probably wondering, is the Messiah ever going to come? Is Jesus ever, in fact, they didn't know it was Jesus at the time, but is the Christ ever going to come? Will this ever happen? In the same way, part of you may be wondering this morning, will Jesus actually come again? Will he actually make things right? And the answer to that question, and we can be sure of the answer to the question because of the Christmas story, the answer is yes. He's going to come. He's going to make things right. He's going to keep his promises because he is a promise-keeping God. And that means that you can trust him now even if your life circumstances are hard. Listen, maybe right now your circumstances aren't what, they hope, aren't what you hoped they would be. Maybe you envisioned your life looking differently than it does. Maybe you thought it wouldn't be this way. Maybe the fire of affliction is burning hot in your life right now. In the midst of that, let me encourage you this morning. You can still trust him. Because he keeps his promises, you can be sure that he's up to something even when you're not sure what he's up to. One day, he will return and make things right. And somehow, if we're in Christ, and that is important, if we're in Christ, he's working for our good even now. So I think this passage matters because it reminds us that God keeps his promises. But I think this passage also matters because, secondly, it helps us to see God's character. Now, in this particular song, I don't think it's just encouraging that he keeps his promises. That's encouraging. But I also think it's encouraging why he keeps his promises and why Jesus came. More specifically, I find it to be extraordinarily encouraging that God sent Jesus because of his tender mercy. That's the language that's used in verse 78. In fact, let's go back to verse 76 here. This is John, Zechariah talking about John the Baptist. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. So why did Jesus come? To glorify the Father? I think that's true, yes. To live the life that we could not live? That's true too. To rescue us from our sin? That's also true. All those things are gloriously and amazingly true. But don't miss the underlying motivation for why God does what he does here. 
According to verse 78, the reason we have knowledge of salvation and forgiveness of sins and peace with God is because of the tender mercy of our God. Now the word that's translated as tender here actually comes from a Greek word that references our intestines or our bowels. The idea is that God's mercy then comes from the very deepest parts of who he is. His mercy is not just something that's mercy in name only. It comes from the very core of his existence. He doesn't just have mercy on his people in some sort of formulaic way. I guess it's time to show mercy. No. On the other hand, what he really feels is to the very core of who he is, he feels mercy. Hence the translation here, tender mercy. Listen, I don't know what your picture of God is like. I don't know what comes into your mind when you think about God. But if tender mercy is not part of the equation, your picture is deficient. Now in saying that, let me be careful to say this. God is just, he is holy, and he will pour out his righteous wrath on sinners. Just this week, I was reading Revelation 6, and I was struck by the ferocious nature of God's opposition to sin. He hates sin, and he will not let it go unpunished. But at the same time, he's full of mercy and tenderness towards his people. I think that's a hard picture for us to grasp because we don't really know people who are both of these things at the same time, who can have a righteous anger towards things, and, and God's anger is righteous, and at the same time, they can be tender and merciful. We tend to know people who are on one end of the extreme or the other. For example, I've known plenty of angry people in my life. Not too long ago, I was at a high school sporting event where a guy just went berserk because he disagreed with an official's call. Eventually, the referee had to call over one of the school administrators to deal with this guy's anger. It was kind of an ugly scene. And in that moment, I did not think to myself, you know, I bet that guy is really tender and merciful at home. And what I thought to myself is, this guy's angry. If he's going this berserk at a high school game, imagine what he's like at home. He is not a happy person. I would not describe that person as tender or merciful. And so it's hard for us to understand, well, how can these two things go together? On the other end of the spectrum, I've known people who are so gentle and so soft-spoken, and kind of seems impossible they could be upset about anything. My great-aunt Marion would fit in this category. She was the sweetest, kindest old lady you could ever meet. As she got older, she developed some dementia, and it was sad because she would often forget where she was or what had happened just five minutes ago. Got to the point where she could open a gift, and then five minutes later, open it again because it was still in front of her. She forgot. But here's how sweet she was. Every time she opened it, she would always be so kind and thankful. I would describe her as a tender person. I wouldn't be fearful of my Aunt Marion. She wouldn't hurt a fly. I think that's the thing that's confusing for us about God. He's both righteously just and fiercely wrathful towards sin, and righteously so, by the way. And at the same time, he's compassionate and kind and full of steadfast love. His disposition towards his people is one of tender mercy. Now, no question, some of you this morning need to be reminded of God's righteous wrath towards sin. You've never repented of your sin and trusted Christ, and you need to turn from your sin today and trust in Christ so that you can be saved from his righteous wrath, so it's not poured out on you. But while some of you need to be reminded of that, I would guess that just as many of us, if not more of us, need to be reminded this morning that God is full of tender mercy. God cares about his people. He loves them. To the very core of who he is, he feels mercy and grace. God is not a cosmic cop who's waiting behind a speed trap waiting to catch us. Gotcha, I knew you'd sin. That's not what he's like. He's tender, he's tender and merciful and waiting with open arms for those who run to him. 
And so my encouragement for you this morning in light of his character is to do just that. Run to him. Maybe you don't know Christ. Maybe you've grown up going to church and you know all the facts, but you've never actually put your trust in Christ. If that's you, run to him knowing that he's waiting with open arms. He's full of tender mercy. Maybe you're a Christian, but you're caught in some pattern of sin and you just can't get out of it. In fact, you're ashamed to admit it. Let me encourage you this morning to run to him, knowing that his mercy is effusive, his disposition one of tenderness. Maybe you're scared and not sure what you should do. You're trying to make some decision in life and you just feel paralyzed. Let me encourage you, run to him, knowing that his care is genuine. Maybe you're frustrated or angry right now with the way things have gone lately. Bring your concerns to him, knowing that he is not going to reject you if you run to him, but rather he's waiting with open arms to the very core of who he is. He feels mercy. Listen, Jesus came into this world because of his tender mercy. It's not just a story of him carrying out mercy in some robot-like fashion that you felt like he just had to do it. No, it's because to the very core of who he is, he felt kindness towards his people. And this passage matters because it helps us to see that. It helps us to see God's character. But lastly, I would say this passage matters because it reminds us that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. He's the Christ. He is the anointed one. Now, obviously, there's a lot going on in this song. And there are a lot of things worth contemplating in Zechariah's song. Again, it'd probably be worthwhile in just meditating on all the Old Testament references, 16 plus maybe. But the most obvious part of the passage is that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah the promised Savior, the one who would rescue the people from their sin. Clearly, that has implications for us in terms of salvation. If we want to be rescued from our sin, there's only one place to go, Jesus. But Jesus' status as the Christ also has implications for us in terms of how we live on a day-to-day basis. In fact, this is the point Zechariah seems to make in verses 74 and 75. Verse 74, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So how are we to respond to the salvation that comes in Christ? What's the goal of our salvation? Well, according to Zechariah, one of the purposes, one of the goals of our salvation is that we might serve him without fear, that we might live in holiness and righteousness all of our days. In other words, Jesus' title as Savior is not just a title that we give to him and then we move on. It's a title that should impact the way we live on a daily basis. If he is the Messiah, if he's the one who rescued the people from their sin, if he's the one who grants forgiveness and life everlasting, then the only fitting response is to serve him and live in a way that brings glory and honor to him. Understanding the gospel gospel message should provide for us a desire to serve him. Out of gratitude and out of love, we should want to live for him. Think about it this way. If I was at the post office and I had one less stamp than I needed, and you gave me an extra stamp, I would be grateful, but I probably wouldn't uproot my whole life for 58 cents. But on the other hand, if somehow our family fell into a state of financial disarray, and we were on the verge of being homeless, and you stepped in and paid off our mortgage, and then on top of that, you put $100,000 into our bank account, my level of gratitude would be much different. And I would be much more expressive in my gratitude and much more willing to show you how thankful I was. The point is, the more deeply we're helped, the more trouble we were rescued from, the more sacrificial the love shown to us, the more motivated we will be to respond with gratitude, love, and devotion. So if Christ came to rescue us from our sin, if he came to lay down his life on our behalf, 
If out of his tender mercy, he rescued us from our enemies, how could we not respond to him then by serving him and living for him and living in a way that brings glory to him? Ephesians 2 tells us that we were dead in our transgressions and sins, but God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together in Christ. The end result of that, though, according to that Ephesians 2 passage, Ephesians 2 verse 10, is that we are now God's workmanship, created to do good works which he's prepared for us to do. In other words, God rescues us in order that we might display his greatness. We see the same thing in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter 2, Peter tells us that God calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light in order that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness. So the response then to Jesus coming into the world and rescuing us from our sin cannot simply be, let's sing a few Christmas carols. Or maybe let's send out a Christmas card and put a scripture verse on it. Those things are great, but the response is more than that. It's to serve him and lay down our lives for him. The response is to live holiness in holiness and righteousness so that we can bring attention to him. Not because we have to in order to earn salvation. That's ridiculous. We can't earn our salvation. It's only by grace. But rather, after we're saved by grace, our motivation is to serve him out of love and gratitude. Because we love him, because we know what he's done, we want to make him our priority. To that end, I would just ask this question. Does your life reflect Luke 1, 74 and 75? If you've been delivered from your sin, if you've been delivered from your enemies, in order to live a life of holiness and righteousness and to serve him without fear, are you actually doing that? Are you reflecting the purpose for which you're saved or have you become distracted by all kinds of other things? Would the people around you say, oh, it's clear, they're living for Christ? Or would they say, oh, they're probably living for something else? Is your life's motivation to serve him? Is your life marked by holiness and righteousness? If not, it might be worth asking the question, do you really understand the Christmas story? Or perhaps even more importantly, have you actually embraced Christ? Or do you simply see him as a religious figure that needs to be acknowledged but not lived for? Listen, Zechariah's song matters because it reminds us Jesus is the Christ and we should live accordingly. We should serve him and we should live in a way that draws attention to him because we love him. So listen, I know the Old Testament often gets overlooked because of the genealogies and strange laws, the confusing sections of prophecy. We oftentimes just skip ahead to the New Testament. But it's important for us to see that the Old Testament and New Testament are one book with one storyline and Zechariah's song reminds us of that fact. Jesus is the promised Messiah from the Old Testament who brings salvation to the people of God. He is the fulfillment of all God's promises. And that reality has implications for us. It means that God keeps his promises so we can trust him. It demonstrates God's character towards sinners like us. He's full of tender mercy so we can run to him. And most importantly, it means that Jesus is the Christ. And therefore, we should serve him and live for his glory. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the reminder we have here in Zechariah's song that the Old Testament and New Testament are not disconnected, but rather Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that was talked about in the Old Testament. All of the promises that you made, Lord, find their yes and their amen in Jesus. And in light of that, we pray that we would live accordingly, that we would run to you knowing that you are tender and merciful, that we would trust you knowing that you keep your promises, and that we would serve you knowing that you laid down your life for us. Oh Lord, please help us to live in light of what your word teaches us. Help us to live today in light of Zechariah's song. 
It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, one last thing here before I read our benediction. Today is the second Sunday of the month, and on the second Sunday of the month, we do have a benevolent offering. In fact, there'll be a basket that'll be located out here in the hallway here on your way out if you'd like to help with the benevolent fund. Again, this is just to help people in our congregation who are in financial trouble. And by the way, if that's you and you're in financial trouble, let me encourage you uh, that we would love to help you. And if there's any way we can, it would be our joy to do so. So again, that basket will be located out in the foyer. Afterwards, you can find that. So the book of Jude here is where our benediction is going to come from this morning. Let me get there and then we'll read it. Jude says this, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. You're dismissed. Have a great week.